0: Welcome back to Running Towards. Apologies if that hello is a little enthusiastic. I am vacationing on the Greek island of Crete right now and staring out my window at the gorgeous Lefka-Ori mountains uh, that I hope to be running in by this time tomorrow. Um, so apologies for the long delay between the last podcast release and this one. This is probably the first real vacation I've taken in my adult life, and I sadly realized that I haven't taken any vacation time off in the last two years, so it was definitely needed needed a sort of life reset, and I hope to get back on a more consistent schedule soon. I am super delighted to share this episode with you. Um, today's guest is Logan Fippin, who is a pro cyclist for Team Novo Nordisk. And like me, also an American living in Catalonia, Spain. So Logan is a really incredible person. And my guess is that if he hadn't found cycling, that he would have been a poet or a playwright or a monk, or maybe he would have just stuck with skiing. (laughs) He really has a way with words and understanding of symbolism, and he just articulates his ideas in this really superb way. He's definitely a kindred spirit in his approach to sport as a sort of self-actualization vehicle um, and sport as a somewhat of an intellectual pursuit. So he is highly reflective, but he can also appreciate the value and the vacuousness of like heads down grinding without the poetic flair and holding space for those two things, I think is is a little hard to find. So really appreciate hearing the way that he thinks and talks about movement. So in this conversation, we talk about Logan's spiritual journey, namely with Tantra, and for all of the Western folks, get your mind out of the gutter, because Tantra is not quite what you think it is. We talk about respecting the limits of your own body and balancing health with high-level athletics, which is a lot easier said than done. And even how you might apply some principles of tantra or other spiritual practices to that perspective. We talk about enduring injuries and health scares, and some high-powered cycling crashes that leave you, uh, you know, wondering about your immortality. We also talk about Logan's journey with diabetes and essentially coming back to life and how that actually led him to be a pro cyclist. Most importantly, I think we talk about what it means to take the proverbial road less traveled as an athlete, to walk a path that is not the typical child prodigy that you know goes to the junior leagues and then turns pro. In the short time that I've known Logan, we've had several conversations about the role of sport in a full values-based life and in those conversations his perspective has been profoundly reassuring and even inspirational to me at times just as a friend and I really hope that you get that same story intrigue insight and value from this please let me know what you think find me on instagram or the podcast running towards Podcast and instagram Reach out to Logan and let him know what you think if this story resonated with you. And again, thank you so much for your time as always, and I hope to see you in the next episode. Just kick it right off with, tell me who you are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My name is Logan Phippen Um, from the U.S. I grew up in Utah and uh, more recently I've been living in Portland, Oregon before finding my way out here to Spain in the uh, Tarragon region. And who I am is like an ongoing process (laughs) of discovery. I have some pretty good ideas that I've followed along and found a good storyline so far. But uh, awesome. yeah, that's it's about where I'm at. Right
0: on. So you know, you are a pro cyclist. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what brought you out to Spain. And I think you have a really interesting story as an athlete. You've had kind of lots of twists and turns and shoots and ladders. So <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe if we could start there with your athletic history.
1: All right, that's a good place to start. Um, athletes, athleticism is something that I guess, in a way, became one of my first defining characteristics as a person from the time that I was like a young kid. I mean one night, when I was, I guess, like seven years old, one of my dad's old friends came by the house in like the dead of winter, and was like, rich, my father, what do you what do you say to uh, bringing your kids out skiing? And as a kid, you're like, oh, skiing, that's a cool thing to do. That's like what the cool kids do. And so, you know, we go out to, like, the local sports shop to get some skis. But they're cross-country skis. You know, they got, you know, scale skis. And uh, then we show up to, like, the first practice, quote-unquote practice. And, you know, it was just a bunch of kids in, you know, our snow gear just cutting our own track under moonlight in a golf course in Ogden Valley. In Utah and that's what it was and then it was later when we had like this informal inter-team race where going hard was actually like something that it turned out I could do really well and then from there it was like well there's actually a racing series where you can go and uh, compete and start competing and so I did that you know from the time I was seven eight years old until I was, well, off and on, because my dad wouldn't let me race if I had bad grades. <laughs> and I was inca- <laughs> incapable of getting good grades <laughs> in junior high. So, you know, I had a, like a small break when I was 13, 14. Um, but then did it again until I was 19. Was a uh, competitive cross-country skiing. And that was like, for me, is just such a beautiful sport. And, um, then, uh, along with that, you know, you still need something to do in the summertime. And so it was running, running on the trails and, um, track cross country, found my way into swim team. But what really captivated me when I was a boy, I guess, around the eight or nine years old age was cycling. Now I remember my dad, he had gotten into road cycling and, uh you know, found this local team that he was riding with and all his buddies and all they were training. And then, you know, one July, he has on the Tour de France on OLN. And, you know, I come downstairs to watch the TV with him. And then you just see these guys on TV riding their bikes over these incredible mountainscapes in terrible weather with fans on the sides of the road cheering them on. And it was like, what is this? What is this possibility for a person to like, I'd never seen anything like it. Mm. And it just entranced me and gave me the cycling bug. And so then all I wanted to do was be a bike racer and followed that, you you know, off and on for, I mean, until now, Here I am doing it. And uh, like you said, yeah, it has been a a shoots and ladders course and um, has definitely had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of like, am I doing this? Am I not doing this? And uh, still finding myself here very much doing it, very involved.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, now that I know that you are on the swim team, the good news is that when pro cycling is over, you have a killer triathlon (laughs) career ahead of
1: you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, so interesting, so you you know were in trance with cycling from a young age, um, but if I remember the story correctly, your dad wouldn't let you get super into bike racing, and you've actually come to pro cycling in a sort of alternative route, you know, most kids, you know, they start, we know when they're in the high school, I think it's in the junior leagues. I'm not a cycling person. So I think it's something like that. You'll correct me. And then you kind of progress on through there through development and then, you know, on to the final like UCI Mm -hmm. stage. Um, So you have a lot to fill in there about what happened in between skiing, (laughs) not being able to be a bike racer and now being a bike racer.
1: Yeah. So you were like, that's so funny. Do you recall that about my dad not letting me race bikes when I was young? Cause that was so frustrating and <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> agitating. Um, but yeah, that was the thing is like, he was like, look, it's too dangerous for you to be out on the road training. And so you're not going to be able to do this until you at least have a driver's license. And I was like, well, as a kid, it's like, that's a long ways away. And, but I did have a filler, I had a mountain bike and i lived very very close to the trailhead and so in the afternoons after school or when i needed to skip class to be out on my bike during school i could just get out on the trails on my mountain bike and so that was like my first experience of actual bicycle racing was the mountain bike and i was very successful at it and just it came very naturally for me which you know kind of for a little bit had me along the lines of like, am I going to be a mountain biker? Am I going to be a road cyclist? And I went through like the fun time of like being a teenager and like being good enough to like have the confidence to start like emailing companies for sponsorship. And they ended up like on a good little factory team and had some small grassroots sponsorships. And for me that was like pretty legit and pretty fun. Yeah, And uh, then but I still I still wanted to be a road cyclist. And so, you know, I was, like, 18. I was, at that point, like, finishing high school and about to go into university and was going to go into architecture. And um, I had skipped on down to southern Utah and just kind of began to set up shop for myself as just, like, you know, became... I guess a more clear way of putting it is, like, started to do more self-discovery and self-exploration. <clears throat> and, you know, honestly, it was like smoking a lot of pot with my friend. And we just have like these late night discussions about life and consciousness and being. And it was at that point where it's just like, well, what I want to be is a bike racer. And so I want to be more serious about this. And so kind of moved my life from Southern Utah into Northern Utah where I knew I had friends who were racing and they were good local cyclists and, you know, fast in the local scene. And they were just like, man, come up here and train with us. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. And um, then by the time I was like 20 going up through the rankings, you know, in cycling, there's a ranking system in the U S where it's like you're a cat five, like brand new amateur and then you have to collect points and races to get yourself to a Cat 1. And I remember when I was 19 and still living in southern Utah, there was this old legend, Joel Bingham, who like owned the Bingham Cyclery bike shops in Utah. And he and I were pretty close. And he was like, look, Logan, you can do this, but nobody gives a shit about you until <laughs> you're a <laughs> your 19-year-old cat one cyclist and until you're there like you just like nobody cares and it's like ah, okay fine but I care like I feel like I'm so much better than the category says I am and but you know you go through it all and you know eventually like I had my cat one by the time I was 21 which was still for the time like pretty rapid and now like 21 year olds are winning the tour de France so it's like not a big deal but (laughs) so (laughs) Um, but that was like a very like clear trajectory of where I was headed. I got on a good local elite team and we were racing all over the U S in what was then called the NRC or the national racing calendar, which is now called the pro road tour in the U S and, um, it was at the tour of the Gila in New Mexico in I think 2014 something like that. And um, first stage was feeling so good, had really great legs. And there was this moment when we're like lining up because we're going into the finale and the finale was this really infamous climb called the Mogion. And which was like, it was just hard. So we we're like getting set for that, which we're like trying to get our team captain up towards the front of the peloton. And I remember I had my captain... On like my wheel and we're moving up the gutter, and all of a sudden I see these riders. We're like 15th 20th wheel, and this rider swings out left and then like slams in right and the whole peloton's already like jammed in the gutter, and then it was just crashing, going fast. It was like all the crashing stopped and like my bike was like a hundred meters away. And everybody was just, like, wrapped up amongst each other, bloodied. And it was really horrific. And uh I kind of assessed myself and was like, all right, I'm fine. I can uh just find my bike, which was then, like, clearly broken. So I got a spare bike from the team car and began to ride to the finish. But then as I was, like, getting back on, just, like, had so much pain around my pelvis Mm -hmm. that as I was going up the final climb, um, I was just like, something is very clearly wrong and just so agonizing that I knew it was just like, okay, as soon as I get to the finish line, I'm just going to have to go to the hospital. That's, that's all there is to it. So I get to the finish line and I like reach on my back and feel that it's just in so much pain and it was pretty funny i like reached in my pocket and i could like feel this like warm oozing and i was just like terrified to look at my hand because i was like oh my god did i like severely lacerate my back and i'm (laughs) and that's like part of my problem and i just feel this warm ooze and i turn and like look at my hand and it's just like oh i just smashed all the gels (laughs) in my jersey pocket So that was like a little, whew, okay, all right, yeah. we're, we're okay so far. Uh, but then, you know, went to the hospital there in Silver City, New Mexico. And, uh, they you know, I fractured two vertebrae.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. And um, so that was like immediately like time off the bike. But also uh, around that period of time, I had come across, you know, yoga, and more specifically, like, the the tantric route. And um, I had also had, like, these super strange occurrences around this particular uh, yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda, that were just so strange, and um, that... You know, and the the yoga that he was talking about was everything to do with, you know, aligning the chakras and using the uh, latent energy and the spinal column and, you know, that on face level. Um, So this was just like kind of a a funny coincidence to now have this injury there. And um, so I was working through those processes and that modality of um, spirituality while also recovering to get back on the bike. And it turned out that, like, after that period of time, that summer of recovering, I just, like, stopped racing. I went to, like, my last race, which was up in Oregon, and was, like, couldn't finish the race, DNF'd last stage and was like all right I'm done and like then went on like a 10 day fast and then from there on out it was like just meditation and yoga and did that very deeply and that uh period really climaxed after going to India and doing a lot of one on one work with a uh master out there and then returning to the U S and during that period, like I wasn't riding my bike at all. It was just the yoga. And, um, after that period in India, I came back to the U S and like, my body was just like deteriorating. And I had a mentor at the time. And what was funny is he was like, you know, this is something that just happens to the yogis. You know, your uh, your elements, you, they, uh, for me, it was like pitta and kappa, which were like totally vitiated. And these are like little Ayurvedic elements that make up the body and holds the energies of the body in balance, as well as, you know, the physical. And uh, my kappa was just being deteriorated, which the yogis say happens when you do this at such a high intensity, is that it'll leave you without any base, which is like you're fat. And for me, I was just like getting so, so, so thin. Mm -hmm. And um, then was just starting to feel really bad and uh, was working in the garden one day and just had a complete emotional breakdown. And when I went back to my mentor to talk about it, we were discussing like just how strange it is to have this – body to be embodied but when you're not paying attention to what's really going on here then there's like a there's something that's not quite right there's a there's a misconnection and in the yoga at the real depths of it there's this uh, mythic identity with Shiva, but then the only thing left when you're in that mythic identification is to be in love with your Shakti and to be in love with that portion, which is actually embodied and coming down from that high was just like really trying to, for one, like going out into the observable world and being in awe of its splendor and its horrors. Mm -hmm. And so then this whole time that the body's now deteriorating for me, there was like a real alarm, and a little realization of just like, God, I've not given the attention. Like I've been abusing this machine and this beautiful, well, really this beautiful organic uh, miracle and just top downing it with a program of what I'm going to do instead of what does it want to do. And then Can I it,
0: ask you a question about that. Yeah, you may. So when you're talking about th- at this point, that program, are you thinking about your program, your spiritual program, or are you actually also seeing the equivalent in your cycling program?
1: Oh, I think there's, it's definitely the same. Like, it can be the same. Um, because even in the spirituality and that spiritual, you know, searching, there can be a program of, what what I feel like I'm going to understand, what I want to understand, and you know what, uh, just the way that on an individual level and and on an individual basis you can really interpret what is happening, and also you know like I've had to address this recently with myself in the cycling program of like, are you, you're doing it again? <laughs> <laughs> And you know this body does, doesn't want to operate this way. There has to be, like, the best way I think I've heard it put was, like, when you, if you go through the process, in and it's not for everybody, like, everybody has their own method of dealing with these things, of dealing with life. But when you come at it from the way of understanding the program you're on and uh, the nicest way that I've found to alleviate that is to develop a courtship with your body. and that's really like I think the one of the basis of the tantra and when you're having this you know relationship between this uh, principle that they say is masculine, this principle that they say is feminine, the Shiva and Shakti of the thing, and their lovers. And so how do you, in within your own being, how do you make them lovers? Well, you establish a courtship and, you know, you look where the other wants to look. You follow, you lead, and you you play a bit with them and see where they want to go. And so in terms of like deconstructing the cycling program, there just has to be times where it's like, what does the body want to do today? I know that I want the body to go hard because that's what's going to be required when I show up to race. But really, what does the body want? How does the body want to experience it? And what energies then can be like excited within that process that can actually, when it comes time to really do the thing in a race, can that be actually a wholesome experience rather than just agonizing torture you're putting yourself through?
0: So, uh, where were you before I interrupted you? You were, (laughs) (laughs)
1: um, I was, I was at the part where I was, Mm -hmm. my body was deteriorating Mm -hmm. and the way that I was internalizing that was that just like real, um, remorse for, you know, not acknowledging this body for really how beautiful it is and the miracle of life that it is and you know it's like they talk about in different modalities this like uh this concept of a veil and if the physical world is this uh feminine principle that is regarded as sacred and then the consciousness, the awareness as the masculine principle is just like, you know, the one who has to be, you know, it's like a marriage ceremony where it's like you lift the bridal veil to reveal the mystery. And then you can choose to wed that or not. And, uh, for me, my remorse was like, I just been felt like I'd just been trying to rip the veil away too aggressively. Mm-hmm. And now the body was actually suffering because of it. Um, um, what was really going on in fact was that I was suffering type one diabetes and didn't know. Mm-hmm. And which is still funny enough, they call a disorder of the kappa. <laughs> you know, your, your your earth element. That is a disorder of the earth element. Um and you know at that point with not cycling and, you know, kind of on the fringes of sanity From the Tantra, the main thing that came up for me then after this diagnosis was like, I need to make some very clear agreements with life and how it'll be lived from here on out because everything now is, you know, is basically a a life support for as long as I... Because the natural lifespan was over. I mean, diabetes kills you if you don't treat it. And... So with that natural lifespan now over, and as long as I'm choosing to be here, set up the clear agreements with how life is going to be lived. And then it became a matter of just getting in touch with my desires. And I think that desires can be a very true thing. I mean, it's something that, at least for me, was spawned during childhood. I mean, my primary childhood desire and ambition, as soon as I was captured by cycling was like I need to be doing this and then find what it really means to me along the way so that was what it was was that I need to be cycling and
0: uh, let's stay with that thing on desire for a second okay. so I don't know much about yoga tantra or more like hindu style tantra I know a lot about buddhist tantra I'm like a very casual practicant of Tibetan Buddhism, and and the whole point of tantra is to use your desire to channel like your the illusion and your earthly impulses through desire, and um, in order to like sublimate the suffering. Mm-hmm. And then something else you just said that stuck with me is that you were on the edge of sanity. <laughs> I think was the the verbiage that you <laughs> yeah. used. And I'm wondering, so in, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, there is a strict structure of initiation of, you know, working with a mentor that, you know, teaches you how to do these uh, meditations because precisely the idea is that they're so intense that they can be dangerous Mm -hmm. if you don't know what you're doing, that you can basically lose yourself in merging with these deities or the ideas behind these deities Mm -hmm. So, did you have that sort of guidance going into it? You mentioned you had a mentor, but did you have someone that was keeping your psyche safe?
1: Um, when I came back, like, I did. And along the way, it changed. You know, after I was diagnosed and then was moving purely into an embodied living, then I didn't. And that's when, like, like you said, those unravelings can really—they really, really happen—and uh, but along the way, to get to the heights of the uh, the experiences of tantra, the samadhis, I guess you could call them. Yes, was totally guided, and for this reason that you mentioned is that yeah, they actually can be very dangerous, and then. As going through that, and this is where mentor number two was really critical, was that as the body was starting to really unwind from that, and um, he, for me, but this is actually what became more grounding, was like, man, you've been on your Purusha cloud. (laughs) and
0: What's a Purusha cloud? So
1: the Purusha is like, the um spiritual essence okay um so in the um sankhya system of cosmology that they use over in the east there's uh the purusha and prakriti prakriti is nature elemental nature purusha is the more i guess uh spiritual essence um the consciousness, the airy elements, something that is not um, easily placed in form. And so his funny way of putting it was that you've been on your Purusha cloud, meaning that, you know, you're, you're out here. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need to get yourself into the earth. And, you know, had been on the upward trending journey. And now for you to like really recover and be well, you need to be going into the ground, going down on the descending journey. And uh, his primary thing was just like, look at, look at your uh, European mythology and have that help you with where you're at. And that was a tremendous help. And, you know, was a definite aid while being on those fringes of insanity. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, like this, I guess like we're going off on tangent, but it is so interesting because I think it really, you know, truly is something. When you go into these deeper states and meditative states and you spend time there, you have realizations and assimilate different understandings and different ways of viewing the world that when you are out of it and you go through the world the way that you see and interpret everyday things becomes so different because things are no longer literal they're metaphorical and mythological it's like and so everything is a symbol for something else which makes um existing very very interesting at times um Mm -hmm
0: sort of makes poetry out of everything, too. Absolutely. I'm a fan of, but for instance, you know, just to continue on this tangent and metaphors, you know, if everything is poetry, it's really hard to train <laughs> at a high level. <laughs> like, when I get caught up in the poetry, I, I train like shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: it is really that way. And and that's such a nice way you put it as well. It, life is poetic. And yeah, that is one of those beautiful, beautiful gifts of life is that now we also have language in which we can decorate this life that we live. And it, Absolutely. Um, yeah, those things make, uh, it makes life very beautiful and a nice way of addressing things. Um So yeah, then then, before we move
0: on, I I have one question. Mm -hmm. So when you had your injury, you were off the bike for a while, Mm -hmm. you found Tantra, you found a spiritual practice. Was there a moment, a defining moment in which you realized, like, I don't have any desire to train like I used to. I don't have any desire to put myself through the cycling circuit or was it more gradual?
1: Um, for me, I feel like the desire and all of the impulses that I had applied towards cycling and training became applied to the practices of tantra and the immersion into that world, and in a way that there was no like no loss of energy, no um, dispersal or like. Uh, replacement of energy and attention it just all became channeled into something different you know what I mean whereas like during the course of that time and just like keeping the same amount of living intensity there was like I just couldn't even tell you like how much time is spent just in the practice and in the readings, because I think that one of the things that was really critical towards having a good grasp of what was going on when approaching the tantras was getting all of the backup mythology, which is like all of the backup psychology towards how to use these symbols and how to, mm-hmm. you know, use them well. And uh, it took a lot of energy to really get that from all sides. And, um, so yeah, again, I don't think that that energy or that desire really ever went away or was, it was just put somewhere else into a different, different mode of action. Um, which, yeah, that's a interesting thing to think about just when you look at how you fluctuate, how, or how one can fluctuate, between their desires and the way that they apply it during the course of their lives.
0: Interesting. So the desire is independent of the activity you're saying, that you have this sort of intense desire for pushing your being because it can be physical, it can be um, spiritual or, or emotional or mental, but you're saying the desire is the substance itself without... It's desire is unable to be reduced and the desire then takes on different forms. Am I understanding that correctly? I think so.
1: I think that is a good understanding of what I'm trying to say. And I guess, like, to back that up, I would say that at least in my experience and the way that, you know, I like to look at the way life works is that, you know, there is this impulse of life whose ambition it is to uh allow itself to blossom in a certain way but depending like it's the same impulse to blossom no matter what the flower is you, you know is that a good analogy <laughs> uh, Totally. <laughs> and so there's still this yeah there's still the impulse to bloom no matter what strain of flower you are. And, you know, we as people, we can like choose to apply that towards so many different, you know, ways of living life. And I guess this is like where the funny institute of duty comes in. Um, But yeah, I think that if you're, you're on your course and you're in touch with your desires, you could find that, yeah, that way that life wants to manifest through you is going to be present no matter what you're doing with it because the chances are you're going to carry some of the same characteristics whether you're in business or athletics or whatever your uh your thing is
0: absolutely so getting back to descending from the blue
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then I just had to be on my bike. And the fun, the fun thing was, was that when I was racing before, when I was like 21, I remember that there was this team that had all type one diabetic riders. And I was sitting in the hospital bed and think about that and was like, how interesting. I remember them. I remember racing against them and wondering to myself, seeing, you know, because I could see that they had their Dexcom sensors, which is like a continuous glucose monitor, and a couple of them had their glucose pu- or their insulin pumps, and just mm-hmm. uh, you know wandered into that. And uh, now it seems like I had the opportunity to actually figure out what that really was like. And um, so that whole summer, I just trained, and then when I felt like my fitness was okay. I emailed them and sent my palmeras of all the things that I'd done on the bike. And they were like, my aim was to race mountain bikes for them because I did not think that road cycling mm-hmm. again would be really like, I knew it'd be very, very, very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. At least because before when I was racing, you know, I was working full time and training full time. And that is very, very difficult um, to maintain any yeah. sort of like life living um but they hit me back and was like would you be interested in racing road bikes full time i was like well yeah (laughs) that would be (laughs) that would be really cool um so yeah the team team over nordisk they invited me to be on their development team which at that time was like a team of like 19 dudes from all around the world and Mm -hmm. got paid a little salary and you just got to race and that was like, that was so awesome. <laughs> and um, now racing professionally for them and uh, being over here in Europe and, you know, having a, a career at it is, is a, uh, it's quite a special thing. Something that's just like, I uh, have to pinch myself sometimes.
0: Yeah. And you're, how old are you Oh now? God. I'm
1: 29 i'll be 30 next month
0: okay oh wow um 30 is great don't (laughs) worry um but you started with them when you were about 24 Uh, 25 yeah okay so that's pretty late oh yeah oh
1: it's so right like this is yeah that's the funny thing where it's like yeah this little journey has been like so up and down and as you said has so many shoots and ladders And, but, like, when I show up and, like, I still feel so young, like, I don't know, it's a strange thing where it's like, yeah, I know I'm getting older for an athlete. And at the same time, it's like, ah, I still feel young.
0: The 30s are the golden years for endurance. (laughs)
1: That's what they
0: say. So it's it's just going to go up from here. Just you wait. Yeah,
1: that's what... uh... That's what I think as well.
0: Yeah. So did that give you any, like, chip on your shoulder or any complex to be, you know, riding against guys that had been pro for so much longer that had gotten, you know, further along in the cycling game at a younger age?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, I think mostly just because I really cherish and treasure the way that i've spent my time and i know that you know i haven't had a very clear direct course towards this but it's been my course and that for me makes it worth so much it's invaluable and it's also just you know like for people who love to have stories to live by like it makes for such a fun story when you get to reflect back on all the things that have been experienced during even just this short period of life that makes it, uh, still exciting and engaging. And absolutely there to like, it's still funny. Like I catch myself, you know, when I'm watching races or I'm at the starting line and there's like some big name writers who I've watched on television for years. And then you you're like, you're going through, the results and it's just like that guy's 28 like he's basically my age a little younger I thought he was so much older (laughs) because I've been watching him for so long (laughs) 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 and so that's like a funny thing that happens but any sort of like chip Mm -hmm. on my shoulder no not really I feel like there is I feel like like there is this thing where it's like the young kids now are so good. Like they're so good. And they carry this level of experience that used to take years to get. And now they're just Mm -hmm. like, they got it, which I think is like, just kind of symptomatic of the way that the youth in general in society is these days. And, um, but ultimately you just have to like appreciate it because they're the ones who are going to drive you to work harder and strive and strive Absolutely. for more than what you thought was possible before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the same thing's happening in running, for sure. Like, it used to be unheard of for kids to go, you know, or not unheard of, but, like, really special when kids went sub four mm-hmm. in the mile yeah. in high school. And now, like, you know, you're, you're, not, good <laughs> if you're not doing sub four. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, so... You're pretty competitive, like, you know. And I think what's interesting about cycling is that it's an endurance sport, but it's also a team sport. So, you know, you're balancing your own competitive urges with the goal of the Mm -hmm. team. And, you know, if you were a pro mountain biker, you would just be, you know, racing for yourself, for instance. So do you find that experience to be, you know, thinking about team dynamics, exciting? Or how how does that sit with you? I
1: think it sits well with me. I mean, when, um, when I was a kid and, like, was looking into my future as a racer and, like, always wanted to be number one. And then you grow up and your body develops and you realize that, and your strengths are just going to be so much different than another's and another's strengths are going to be so much different than yours. And what makes the teamwork portion of cycling so interesting is that it gives this opportunity for basically all body types and strengths and like real mindsets to really find their place. And it's like, so the, the course becomes like this chessboard where you have unique pieces that move in different ways and have different strengths. And then they find a way to cohesively execute a task. And that is so fantastic, I think. And you like just, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, it's a unique sport in that way. And for me, I find it super rewarding is like when I know that, like I've trained my body to be able to do what it can do. And, you know, if we're on a day where it's like going to be a summit finish and I have a teammate who's going to be a naturally much more gifted climber than I am, but during the early parts of the days, I can keep him safe and out of the wind or like run and get him bottles and nutrition that he needs and he can go finish and have a strong day on the mountain when it comes. Pfft, that's great. And that's like, of course, there's still like, the point where it's like oh i wish i could be the one one like fighting to cross the finish line first like that'll always be there and at the same time there's also just the the satisfaction of knowing that you could do your job well like i remember there's last season this race in belgium and it was the brussels cycling classic and it's a hard one day classic. And in Belgium, the racing is very technical and full gas. And like we had some riders who like were just like their job is to like be towards the front group for the finish. And my one job was that my director came to me. He's like, Logan, today I don't expect you to finish. But I do expect you to get Roba to the base of the Mirror van Gerardsbergen in the first position. At the front of the group. And then you're like, like, I know this climb, I know Gerardsbergen because I've been watching it in races since I was a kid. You know, I've never ridden up it, mm-hmm. but I've seen it on the television. And I know it's just like a legendary climb. It's like a mythical place. And So that was just, like, my one job. And so the whole day is just, like, struggling, struggling, struggling. Because it's fast, technical, and, like, making sure I know where Roba is at all times. And then uh, we're getting, like, 20 kilometers out from Gerritsberg and start talking Roba. It's like, all right, when we get, like, 10K out to 5K out... We're going to start moving up, and it was like, okay, that's the plan. Before you know it, it's like 10k to go before you get to the base of this climb. And now, Gratsbergen is interesting because it's a very hard cobbled climb, but the lead into it is a descent, which means that it like it's going to be much faster than like going into like a normal climb where it's like flat or gradually uphill to get to the actual base. It's like full on full gas to this descent. And you got to be in the first position as you're into the, going into this descent. And uh, so then, like, the directors on the radio, it's like, guys, you have to be there now. Like, get there now. Sprint. I don't care. Just get there. And it's just like, oh. I was, like, towards the back of the group, like, just sitting behind Robin, I was just like, this is, like, going to be, this is going to be a job. And, uh, Hmm. but then it's like I looked up the road and I saw just like this tiny, tiny, tiny gap open up in the road on the right hand side, and so then it was like, all right, Rob, on my wheel, we go right now, like now. And he got on my wheel and we just like screwed it up to the front of the peloton and like got up there. And I'm like looking at like the big team guys and I'm just like, nice, you did it. and then you know like shop rob off like I just went full gas and now I'm just like drifting back through the peloton as we go into the base of this climb and then I just like go up Grashburg and basically like off the back of the peloton but I was just like I feel like I won because because I was able to do the job that I had to do in a very like you know split second execution moment that was just like nailed it that was just like all right, that's a win.
0: That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, in an earlier conversation in this podcast, I was talking to a friend that isn't a competitive athlete at all, but he said something to me like, you know, if the only objective is winning, then there's no point mm-hmm. at all because there's only one person in a field of sometimes thousands that actually gets mm-hmm. the win. And, you know, we all have to find whatever that is along the way. And, like, you know, people like you or I would probably prefer to be like higher (laughs) on the spectrum, like, closer to the winners (laughs) than maybe, like, you know, further back. But the same, like, I'm, you know, never going to run a 240 marathon. But I totally think I would find, you know, my win the same way that you did. So are there other ways that you find wins? Because cycling is you know, these fields are deep. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And, you know, you can win as a team, or you can win as an individual. But what keeps you going? What keeps you competing when, you know, the win isn't on the table?
1: What keeps me going is that, well, there's also just the internal conversation of, like, have I gotten the most out of myself? And, you know, so for me, that there's still, like, this ambition to really see what I can do as like a person and see what this body can do and really try to maximize its potential for performance and experience. And so just the overall process of doing that motivates me and trying to find the different ways to just be better motivates me and um, and then you know as you go through that process you find that you actually are better and that your chances for getting a result are improved and then that just like fuels that vicious cycle of like continuing to train hard continuing to like monitor all the little things and you know to the best of your ability just to like keep getting those like smaller little bits out of yourself and you know you know that obviously has to be held in good balance because otherwise like we were talking about earlier that becomes a program <laughs> that you're continuing to run on mm-hmm. yourself and so you find like ways to uh balance out and kind of uh you know leverage that uh those demands
0: right on and so you didn't talk a lot about your recovery from diabetes, but obviously, it's you still have it. You're going to have type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. So this is something else that you have to manage. This is like the program on top <laughs> yeah. of the program. And it's interesting because now there's this trend of everybody having continuous mm-hmm. glucose monitors. So it's just another data point, which is interesting because you know previously, it probably would have been seen as a huge setback to have to think about this. But now it's almost a competitive advantage. So are there things... Yeah on the practical level that you're on top of or have to, you know, be thinking about. And then also the second part of that question is how has diabetes changed your, your philosophical or, you know, your emotional relationship with sport?
1: Um, Yeah. The, uh, the new trend of, you know, people without diabetes using continuous glucose monitors is so fascinating because, what a lot of people are finding is that they have glucose problems, you know, whether it's maintaining stability, whether they're hypoglycemic or have, you know, lower blood sugar or higher blood sugar, and then finding out where the happy medium is to make them more effective as athletes. And that's such a fascinating concept that I think has opened a lot of people's eyes into fueling strategies and general nutrition. Um, besides the fact of just like you know people are finding now they have access to this kind of data that you know the more stable they're able to keep their glucose actually the healthier they feel and the healthier they become whether it's losing weight or gaining performance benefits and um, another thing that came up for me recently and i was at a race in turkey in february and uh us on the team, I mean, our, our glucose was just like going through the roof after these meals. And it's just like, God, we're taking like more insulin than we normally would for basically the same kind of meal, but we're still spiking. And like, it can be very easy to just like internalize that and make it a problem. But then it's like, I was thinking about it and was like, wait, we know that this is happening to us because we're looking at it constantly. But what if all these other guys eating the same meals that we're offering the same buffet are also having the same issue in their bodies? Like their bodies also having to make this tremendous compensation for this, you know, food environment that they're just not used to. And so, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, I don't think they're like, I don't have a clear answer for like what really was going on with these other athletes. But it's just something to consider that I think is interesting. And now there's being a a window for viewing what – what goes on what the fueling strategies need to be to be a more effective athlete. Um, yeah. For me having diabetes now as an athlete in the way that's like altered my, uh, philosophy is that it's difficult to say whether it has or not. Um, you know, it seemed like for most of my life, I just kind of had lived in anticipation of some like major life-changing event, like physically happening to me. Like not premonition, but just like just a feeling that something something's got to happen. And then when this happened, it was like, oh, okay, this is what it is, and then when I was transitioning back into being like a full-time athlete, um, my mindset was that I want to be a better, more powerful athlete than I was before I had diabetes just to show to myself that I'm not hindered or held back because of the condition. And, uh, yeah, I can very clearly say that I am a more powerful and more, uh, I guess, well-rounded athlete, um, and a pretty balanced one and, uh, more effective than I've ever been on a bicycle. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun one.
0: So, granted, I don't want to wish you a a short career, um, but I'm wondering, (laughs) so qualify that before I ask this question. You know, at some point, you're not going to be a pro cyclist anymore. At some point, you're not going to be a full-time athlete. And hopefully that's much later rather than sooner. But what Do you see your relationship with sport being at that point? Maybe it's triathlons, (laughs) like I said.
1: (laughs) You know, I always, I always joke, and you know, maybe some of your listeners will be very unhappy. But uh, I always say that I don't want to be a triathlete. I want to be a do athlete. (laughs) Um, but I guess um, for me in sport after. I don't know. It's one of those things where I feel like and maybe you've experienced this yourself is that even in the off seasons, you know, when you're taking your break. From your activities and your trainings and you like just let yourself relax for a little while, but then like after a few days or maybe a week, you start to go a little crazy, you get a little antsy, you, you know, you stop seeing the same person in the mirror. You notice all the little changes in your body and it's just like, ooh, I need to be training hard again and like get back into it. And so there's like that little bit of downtime just becomes like a a whole other thing. So it's difficult having just been, I guess, uh, athletically oriented for so long that uh, like just stopping full on is like very strange to... Uh, I guess grasp but maybe you know I'll stop and like just go down another trip like I did with the Tantra or something and just like (laughs) find find some (laughs) other intensity to devote myself towards
0: yeah totally it's really hard for me personally to imagine a life without sport I'm not a full-time athlete Um, but it's always really interesting to me when I do hear professional athletes say, you know, at some point when I'm not winning, I'm not interested in doing this anymore. And I just wholeheartedly couldn't, can't relate to that. And I'm not sure that I could relate to that even if I were a pro. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like every, your whole being, um, gets accustomed to sport. It's not just your body. It's, you know, your mind, it's your temperament, it's your social relations, Mm -hmm. Um, the way you experience the world. Um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's so true. That is like, uh, I guess, uh, like what you're saying, it becomes so much more integral to who you are as a whole person than just your place across the finish line that having a life without it is just, yeah, kind of, that's outside the scope.
0: Absolutely. So you moved to europe Mm -hmm. to pursue this dream you know you're originally from the u.s um you know we're both in catalonia spain here and i'm curious to hear about you know what your experience has been like integrating um also notably you live in tarragona which is another city that is not the worldwide cycling capital (laughs) of girona (laughs) Um, which i find to be an interesting decision uh being in catalonia um but you know is. Do you see yourself in Europe afterwards? You know, what has your experience been like here? Um, why Tarragona?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I first, like, yeah, I've always wanted to live in Europe since I was a little kid. I just, my identity never held itself to living in the U.S. Um, I don't know why. And, you know, especially like on the deeper philosophical, spiritual things where it's like myself being part native american like i just don't have a strong connection to that territory um so being out here is just tremendously fun and liberating and uh maybe it's like a little bit of a flying boy syndrome where it's just like oh yeah this is nice because i don't have like any any sort of deep ancestral ties to here at the moment um but yeah, then Tarragona as opposed to Girona is just that I also didn't want to be like seeing cyclists all the goddamn time. <laughs> like, I got <laughs> 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 Like, I love you guys. I think you're great. And also I need to just be able to have, you know, the my bubble of life outside of that world. And um there are times where I look back and it's like, Ooh, well, maybe I could have actually had like some really good training partners and like find a good training group if I lived closer to like more professional cyclists. But ultimately is like, I moved here to Tarragona because I do have a teammate very close by is like two kilometers away. And, um, he was just like, man, guys go to Girona, but for a year round, it's way better here, way better weather. Um, the terrain is fantastic. There's a lot of climbing, um, not like high mountain elevation like you get in the Pyrenees or anything. But like you can get a few thousand meters of climbing pretty easily throughout a day. And um, the overall like settling in here is like challenging. I feel like now in my second year here, I have a better grasp on it and am a little bit more functional but honestly like coming out here at first and not knowing any spanish you know like i was that fool in school who was just like oh yeah you know i don't need to learn spanish even though it's like the second most spoken language in the school and the community like i don't need to learn it i'm just gonna spend six years learning german (laughs) (laughs) which is turns out not useful at all (laughs) (laughs) And... <laughs> and same. i learned french <laughs> <Yeah>. it later. <laughs> um, so yeah then it became very difficult being here where like um, english isn't very like largely spoken like if you go just about anywhere and you know usually what happens is like i fumble enough through the spanish that by the time i'm wrapping up whatever i'm doing they just speak english to me and i'm just like oh thanks um but the nice thing is that it kind of like if you want to actually be present in the community or like talk to people and socialize and like be involved you got to like lean into the sword a little bit and like be uncomfortable not knowing what you're talking about and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and find a way to make it work because what i found is that the more times i do that and just endure the discomfort of like not being able to fully articulate be articulate and then it's like oh i'm actually learning these are these are the moments that are teaching me
0: totally it's just like training. Yeah. leading into the discomfort is what yields results. yeah
1: exactly good analogy
0: yeah. So, what's coming up next for you? Uh, you know, I think you're smacked up in the middle of the racing season, <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. Right? So, what's on the calendar?
1: Um, I don't have a super heavy racing schedule right now. Um, I had a race a couple weekends ago in Spain, up in Estella, the, the GP Miguel and Durain, and that was, like, a nice smack in the face from, like, <laughs> the best climbers in the world whereas like you show up and you're just like you're gonna get throttled today um and then next there's a stage race in greece in a couple weeks um may is looking like the tour of hungary the tour of estonia and i think a couple others i can't remember exactly right now and then um in june There'll be a couple weeks spent in Italy, just training up in the Dolomites, and so it's yeah, right very difficult, very difficult life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, I'm so uh, I'm so jealous. Um, also, that like I feel like cyclists get to race more than runners. I mean, runner you can race a lot if you're you know runner, but just the wear and tear on mm. the body is a little oh, bit yeah. different. I think the recovery totally. is is a lot more intense especially if you're doing these really long races and it's cool that you can race for like days at a time and you can race again (laughs) in the same month if if i did that i i would need like two months just to like get my body back in into working i
1: guess that is like just one of the things that makes it such a different sport is like for you as a runner the impact is so high and there's so many little adaptations the body needs to make to be able to handle that even just i guess for one day Whereas for us is like, you know, we're still floating, boys, because we have no impact whatsoever. (laughs) Like we're never actually in contact with the ground unless we're crashing. But
0: yeah, and hopefully the crashing is not happening that often. (laughs) No, not too often. (laughs) Touch wood. Right on. Well, uh, so we're coming up to you know the hour mark, and I think. You know the the question that I ask people at the end of this podcast is, you know, what are you running towards? Keeping in mind, you know, what I said to you know kick us off is is sport is an expression; it's a vehicle of something mm-hmm. else. And I think you really embody that, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to bring you on the podcast. And I've been, you know, <laughs> texting you incessantly to try to make this happen, <laughs> and we finally did it. Um, so yeah. What are you running towards, Logan?
1: I am running towards finding the best version of who I can be. And that is uh, an ongoing process and something which is always yielding little discoveries and little um, revelations, realizations along the way. And uh, it's just a... uh, a nice little journey to be on and one that I enjoy finding myself on. And so I run toward that experience.
0: Very well said. Do you have any other final thoughts to add? Anything that you'd like to say to the world or the small world of listeners of the podcast?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that when, you know, you have your ambit and uh, your ambitions, not to be shy, not to be shy of them and to not be afraid, and to really grab them and see what you can do, see what you can make possible for yourself and for the world, and uh, let yourself bloom accordingly.
0: Very beautifully said. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank Uh, you.
1: I'm glad we found a time to make it happen.
0: I know. Uh, it would have probably been nicer to do it in person, but then also I thought, like, I don't know if I have the technical capacity to, like, set up a person <laughs> recording. <laughs> like, I, I'm, like, playing, you know, dress up at this podcast hosting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was so good to see you, and sometime I'm sure we'll cross paths and, you know, I don't know. You, the sport thing is hard to overlap, but we'll go for a coffee yes. or something. <laughs> yeah,
1: that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good.
0: Super. We'll have a great weekend and yeah, you uh, too.
1: Enjoy
0: Easter your weekend training. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that.
1: <laughs> Been watching all the tourists funnel in and be like, "Oh, it must be Easter week."
0: Oh yeah. On my run today, I I went from my apartment towards Parkway, which is like you know the, the major tourist attraction, in, <clears throat> the major tourist attraction in Barcelona. And I, it's like the only day of the week that I go for a road run on Fridays mm-hmm. and it was horrendous. And I was like, I'm leaving Barcelona. I don't want to live here anymore. There are too <laughs> many people. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. It's probably because of Easter weekend. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes, totally.
0: <laughs> Super. Well, thank you so much, Logan. And, thank you, Harry. Uh, this was a lot of fun. We'll catch up soon.
1: Yes. i so. Ciao.